Hello and welcome to the Bigger Than Us podcast. I'm your host, Raj Daniels, and today I'd like to welcome Peter Kelly Detweiler to the show. Peter has 30 years of experience in the electric energy arena. He writes for Forbes.com and other publications on topics related to disruptive innovation and its impact on the electricity infrastructure. He also provides strategic advice to clients and investors, helping them to navigate this transitional period. Peter, how are you doing today? Just fine, thanks. Peter, thank you so much for joining us today. I'd like to start the show off with something interesting about my guest that many people wouldn't know about you. So you have the floor. Okay. Uh, there are not many people that I know that have eaten 2.2 pounds of camel's meat in one sitting. We have to dig deeper. Please, please explain. I worked for USAID in Mogadishu, Somalia, uh, and I worked in the northern desert for, I was only supposed to be up there for a week working with a team of French agronomists in 1985 um, in a plane that wasn't sanctioned for flying by the U.S. Embassy, and it didn't come for us because of mechanical difficulties. <laughs> so I was left in the desert, uh, right on the tip of the Horn of Africa, eating spaghetti with maggots in it, and never drank water cooler than 100 degrees for those two weeks. And when I finally got back to Mogadishu, um, I raced to the house that I was house sitting in. And the only thing I had left in the freezer was a kilo of camel's meat that I'd bought in the market mm -hmm. before I left. So I boiled and ate the whole thing. And don't, if you want to know what it tastes like, think of beef flavored chewing gum that you can almost never chew to the point of digestion. So that's interesting you share that because although I've never had camel meat, my family um, originates in Uganda and Kenya. And so um, I grew up in London and I took many, many trips back to East Africa. And every once in a while we'll do road trips and there would be these little stands on the side of the road, you know, selling some kind of meat, not exactly sure what it was, but it had this very, like you said, chewy and gamey taste to it. Um, you know, people that are perhaps used to hunting and getting, you know, local meats in the area over here, deer meat, that might resonate with them, but you're absolutely right. I kind of know what the chewy consistency you're talking about. So you would have stopped off in those little dukankas every place uh, throughout Uganda and, and and Kenya then, I imagine. I hitchhiked through in uh, 83 and spent a bunch of time in both of those countries and actually climbed the Ruinsori Mountains between Uganda and the Congo at that time. So you know exactly the kind of stops I'm talking about. They're almost like little shanty shacks on oh, the side yeah. of the road. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And we would go by bus or by car. And, you know, when the bus pulls up, these these traders, if you will, rush up to the bus and they start selling you all these different kind of products. But um, you're not quite sure what you're getting, but you're getting something. Oh, I'm quite familiar with that. In fact, when I when I was there, we we actually, I had to be not physically involved with, but watching them slaughter a cow. I was there for uh, Christmas and New Year's in Uganda, 83, 84. And I actually had to, in the local village with the local headsman, make a impromptu speech about U.S.-Ugandan relations, uh, uh, completely unsanctioned, but put on the spot with plenty of Nile beer to accompany it. <laughs> so I remember my dad and his friends back in Kenya used to drink a beer called Tusker. Oh, yeah. So. Uh -huh. <laughs> Very familiar. That's, that's really interesting, Peter. So, um, Peter, tell, tell me about your current endeavor. What are you working on right now? Yeah, so uh, I was head of uh, demand response for Constellation Energy through 2012. and connected about 1,700 megawatts of assets with a fantastic team of people uh, so that we could essentially create a virtual power plant and turn things on and off. And then uh, we got bought by Exelon. They didn't want a virtual power plant. And my goal after that was to figure out how this whole 
constellation of, of technologies and regulatory policies and carbon drivers, et cetera, were going to create the grid of the future. It was pretty obvious back then that something was stirring, but how it was all going to emerge um, was still somewhat unknown. And I thought that the best way to do that was to try and become one of the communicators. This this thing is going to involve you know $50 trillion worth of global investment between now and 2050, according to Morgan Stanley, uh, to decarbonize the economy. Uh, and mm-hmm. this industry has very few storytellers. So what I've kind of fallen into is being one of those people who sifts through uh, a rather inordinate amount of information on a daily basis, takes me two to three hours a day to read it, and then make sense of it for my clients uh, so that they know what's going on. So can you kind of put a timestamp on when you had that realization? Yeah, I mean, back in in the around 2005, I was already working to try and integrate, for example, lighting into commodity contracts and bundle everything together. And uh, so it, you could already start to see then that something was going to happen. But once the solar thing really started to kick off, and that was um, about 10 years ago that we started to see any volumes of, of rooftop solar coming in, then third-party financing, so on. Then you could start to see, okay, something is probably afoot here. The question was going to be, was it really afoot? How fast could it scale? Was it going to be able to displace conventional generation? And lo and behold, it's gone a lot faster than almost anybody would have predicted. So what do you say, about five, seven years now, maybe nine? I'd say about a decade. About a decade. Yeah. So you said it's grown faster than anyone predicted. How much faster do you feel like it's grown? Well, the cost for, for there's this thing called the experience curve, which is every time you global double output um, of batteries or solar modules, for example, the costs fall by roughly 20%. In fact, in the last six months, battery costs have fallen by over 30%. Uh, and then the, the installation numbers. So just to give you one data point, last year in this country, we installed 777 megawatt hours of energy storage. Sounds like a big mm-hmm. number, right? Put it in it perspective. Does. There's one project by FPL, owned by NextEra, the Manatee Project in Florida that's going to go in with 409 megawatts and 900 megawatts of, of capacity, of battery storage. So one project will eclipse all of the installations in 2018. That's pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. Pretty amazing. So you said you read between two to three hours a day. Who are your, like, what are you doing with this reading and this information that you're gathering? So I read 22 newsletters. Uh, the first thing I do is tweet it out to people, then sometimes put an interesting story on LinkedIn. Then every Monday, I put out a Forbes piece called Your Weekly Juice, The Five Stories That Mattered Last Week. Um, but like then, that. thank you. But then, you know, where I, for example, I'm, I'm going down to New York City um, to meet with investors for lunch in two weeks. Um, I'm often on calls with investors who are looking at, for example, making an investment in a portfolio of tens of millions of um, gas peaking plants, where I would say run, don't walk uh, from that mm-hmm. type of investment. Um, and a part of my job is to look out 10 or 15 years and think about what's going to happen. So if you look at linear forecasts, almost every forecast we've had over the last 10, 10 years, 20 years or whatever, whether it's for gas, oil, batteries, wind, solar storage, EV adoption, they're all linear, pretty straight linear forecasts. They're all wrong. Because they don't, they don't anticipate sort of this S-curve dynamic that really takes place. And so I argue increasingly 
that people need to stop thinking in terms of linear forecasts and much more in terms of potential scenarios. Pick two radical scenarios, for example, and then figure out, are you migrating to the left or to the right in, in terms of which pole are you heading towards? So for example, recently, I interviewed the CEO, Andy Marsh of Plug Power, and it became clear to me, oh, hydrogen's looking real. So now, mm -hmm. basically, I look and say, okay, by 2030, I believe we will have a multi-tens of billion dollar hydrogen economy. So then I okay. start to look for the proof points to tell me that's going to happen. And sure enough, there's an announcement, you know, a couple weeks ago, well, the one this last week, Tsun Krupp, the, the Japanese steelmaker, is now mm -hmm. piloting hydrogen in one of the steel plants. Now, why does that matter? Because it, it's hydrogen that's produced from wind and solar. So for the first time, we can take a renewable intermittent resource and turn it into something that's really energy dense that can be used by heavy industry. Up until now, wind and solar couldn't interact with heavy industry. But if you turn the electron into the medium of hydrogen, mm -hmm. now you have a fuel that essentially represents long-term storage and it's completely green. Um, Australia is looking at a project right now where they may be exporting hydrogen. So exporting sunlight to Asia in the form of hydrogen, putting in like five gigawatts of solar panels in the Australian desert, then using the process of electrolysis to separate water into H2NO, and then taking mm -hmm. that H2 and compressing it and or potentially liquefying it and shipping it to energy starved Asia. You know, it's fascinating all the information you just shared. And you mentioned your Forbes article, do you present to the investors in a form of a call or do you have a report or white papers that you also publish? Uh, typically, it's a call because it tends to be a very dynamic conversation where I'll make some kind of a statement and they're like, well, how about this? And then they dig deeper and deeper into. But I've also done white papers. For example, I did one that actually won an award, which shows you people aren't very um, distinguishing. But anyway, um, <laughs> it was a paper on uh, the global data center industry and power markets. Um, mm -hmm. And it was a client, uh, Vern Global, that's located up in Iceland where power is three and a half cents a KWH and the cooling is free. And cooling for a data center represents roughly 35 to 45% of its load because of the waste heat from the servers. And so I was looking around the whole world, where are these data centers going in? What are the energy costs? What are the infrastructure constraints? Where might they locate instead? And, you know, the, the logical answer was locate to the Nordics with abundant cheap hydropower and cool temperatures or to Quebec, which has the same profile. So if someone mm -hmm. asked me to, you know, uh, look at an industry and make sense out of it, given enough time, I'll, I'll run down a few blind alleys and fall into a few rabbit holes. But eventually I figured out and get it right. So how much is enough time? Oh, it usually takes me a couple months to... For example, that data center paper, I got lost in the thicket halfway through and I just had to leave it <laughs> because I had to disentangle what was happening with supercomputers and um, how was data actually being processed and how quickly mm -hmm. we were moving into a zettabyte world and what did that have in terms of implications and how fast were chips getting more efficient and so on and so forth. And at one point, I just felt overwhelmed and I had to kind of go back to Occam's razor first principles to make sense out of it and go back to the client and say, okay, here's the emerging thesis that I'm seeing. It's kind of like, mm -hmm. you know, when you have that eight ball and you say, am I going to get a date tonight? And then you look into that opacity and finally <laughs> the thing says, I think not. Well, it's one of those things where I finally got clarity around the issue and then we published it and, and it turned out we did okay with it. 
And, you know, data center is a perfect example of nonlinear, right? You've seen the exponential growth yeah. in the last few years. So exactly. that, that I totally understand. So and Peter, if you you've think been involved just in one, one of the, sorry, one other thing about data centers and supercomputers, uh, at the end of the day, the whole electricity realm is about material science. It's chemistry and mm -hmm. physics. And it's therefore the materials that either help generate, transmit, or consume the electron. And the use of supercomputers to figure out better molecules throughout that whole mm -hmm. process is going to dramatically transform the technologies that we employ in the future. To totally agree. There's a you know University of uh, UTD around the corner over here doing a lot of work at the chipset level. TI is one of the major sponsors, so totally yep. understand what you're talking about there. So, sorry so Peter, for the interruption. Been, yeah, go ahead. No, no worries. You know, you've been in the, involved in this industry for a long time. What's your why? What, what drives you to you know, engage in this and keep staying engaged? Okay, so I'm a one-issue voter, which is okay. we live on a planet that ultimately has very physical limitations, uh, atmospheric science being irrefutable. It doesn't care what our ideology is. And at the end of the day, I now tend to look at elections, uh, financial cycles, and wars as small, temporary um, nuisances that are barely worth paying attention to. They're blips. If you look mm -hmm. at the scheme of 20 or 30,000 years of human, you know, habitation since the cave paintings in Lascaux and in, in France, right? If you really care about and love um, fellow humans and fellow species and, and think about what the Bible says or what any holy book says, our job as sentient human beings is to protect those that we love and those that we don't know but should love. So at the end of the day, uh, I'm driven by one thing only, and that is how do we have a habitable planet that we don't end up killing ourselves because we create a finitude of resources in all directions, with the main one being you know, climate change, because if that goes south, then everything goes south. So I'm, I would say that since I was little, I remember driving into Boston one day watching all these cars with stuff coming out of their tailpipes and thinking, and I was probably eight and thinking, this can't go on forever, can it? And then, <laughs> you know, by the time I was in the late eighties, arguing with my father-in-law before I even got married, that climate change was going to be the defining issue of our generation. And now, unfortunately, every study that comes out of NOAA or NCAR, any of these places suggests that the problem and the feedback loops are getting worse faster than most of the modeling uh, suggested that they would. So even though the solutions are moving faster, the problem seems to be exacerbated more rapidly as well. So that is my obsession is, do we leave this place um, when we die uh, so that it's at least as good as it was when we came in? And what's the morality around that? You know, that, that that's really touching. I read a book called Sapiens a few years ago, and my takeaway from that, to your point, is that Although we might feel really important in the moment, over the scale of time, we're not even a drop. So totally understand what you're saying there. I mean, can't you imagine aliens coming to this place in 10 million years and seeing in the sedimentary rock a bunch of plastic glad bags and Barbie doll heads and just going, huh, I wonder what that was all about. <laughs> you're right. You know, you mentioned feedback loop. Can you expand a little on that? Yeah, so essentially, you've got issues. Uh, so if you think about the planet as a finely balanced and finely tuned 
mechanism, the Gaia hypothesis, if you will, that, you know, Lovelock mm -hmm. sort of coined. You've got things like, for example, uh, the oceans, which absorb a lot of heat and CO2. It's one reason we have increased ocean acidification is because it absorbed a lot of the CO2. At some point, that stops happening. And then things change. But even more importantly, in terms of a positive feedback loop, which has negative consequences, look at um, the tundra, where mm -hmm. there's a lot of CH4, you know, methane locked up in the northern tundra, Siberia, northern Canada, and the boreal forests, etc. And what we're starting to see is that the permafrost is melting faster than we thought, releasing more CH4 into the environment. And methane is approximately 23 to 25 times more effective at trapping uh, sunlight's heat uh, than CO2 is. So now potentially you have this massive engine which accelerates the warming of the planet, which then creates glaciers moving more quickly, you know, turning into, um, you know, water more quickly. And we're starting mm -hmm. to understand that it's not the surface of the glacier that's doing a lot of this. It's below the glacier where there's slippage which is causing increased amount of, of melting. And so, so we still poorly understand this entire linked thing that we live on, but we are starting to see some of these positive feedback loops, which may be accelerating the problem faster than we thought. Got you. So you mentioned hydrogen earlier. Are there any particular technologies that you're excited about right now? Yeah, I, I mean, so certainly, first of all, I think batteries are getting really well along. Um, there was an announcement from the company Tesla, uh, sorry, Nikola, which is a competitor to Tesla. In fact, I, there was a great headline, Nikola sues Tesla. It'd be like Tom, <laughs> you know, Thomas sues Edison, right? But anyway, Nikola announced um, the other day that they now have a new battery technology they're going to roll out next year that's about twice the current, so 500 watts per kilogram, uh, which if you can get those kind of densities, means you get a ton more range for the same weight in your truck or your car. So I'm pretty bullish on, even if that one doesn't come to fruition, you can see there's work going on in the anodes, the cathodes, the separators everywhere, because it's a multi tens of billions of dollar business. There's too much money there not for it to get better. And it's still a very immature technology. And then, yeah, I look at the hydrogen thing and the fuel cells and the, the possibility to take that simple molecule and deploy it in all kinds of ways, or essentially turning the electron into hydrogen as a storage medium, if you will, to move green power around the planet. And that's still going to take, you know, 10 or 15 years to get to scale. But based on some of the sizes of the projects, I see the real critical piece of it is how quickly can we get the electrolyzers um, at scale? So this is just like batteries or panels. If we throw more money at it, at the same time we're doing research, with both storage and solar panels, two things happen at the same time. One, you get the economies of scale from a supply chain that gets brutally efficient and squeezes out all the inefficiencies. And two, the technology itself is getting better at the same time because of material science and advances and breakthroughs all the way across. In panels, it's half-cut cells, it's shingling, it's a whole host of new technologies, it's bifacial, etc. And with batteries, it's all the things I mentioned. So if we can see the same sort of thing happen with electrolysis, and there was just an announcement last week from uh, one of the Texas universities that they just figured out a much lower cost process uh, to achieve electrolysis. Again, if we see some of these breakthroughs happen, it will accelerate the, um, the global energy transformation. What I'm also excited about seeing 
are companies like uh, ExxonMobil not posting profits and showing that relative to the S&P, they're sucking wind um, because money <laughs> will move away. You know, I, I think, for example, I look at this Aramco IPO, which could be the largest one in history and think, mm-hmm. yeah, it looks good today. 10 years, 15 years from now, you're going to have regretted making that investment decision if you're still in it. So, you know, Peter, you're so well-read and well-informed. Have you ever considered synthesizing your information into a book? Oh, that's a leading question, Raj. Um, I expect Monday or Tuesday to have the contract um, with Prometheus Books, which is a subsidiary of Globe Pequot. And uh, so the first initial run is going to be 5,000. It's 350-page uh, hardcover with, uh, with color pictures in it. And, mm-hmm. uh, and it's probably going to be called the energy switch. Um, so I wanted to call it the balance of power, but the editors are like, yeah, but then everyone's going to think it's a geopolitical thing. And I right. said, it is a geopolitical thing because True. balance of power, both in terms of power and, you know, political power, all ships, but they're like, yeah, it's going to confuse too many people versus the energy switch, which is a little bit sort of cleaner. So I've got, I put together a 30 page proposal and it's all based on stories. So for example, April 27th of this year, I was on a ferry in Somerset, Massachusetts, watching the implosion of the two largest cooling towers in the world. They cost $570 million, took four years to build, and they were only in service five years, and they became victim to low-cost natural gas, which was because of the fracking revolution technology, which took everybody by surprise. And is so emblematic of the capital at risk with people who aren't paying attention to the disruptive technologies that are emerging from all over the economy. So my job is to to look at these emblematic happenings in this book and make sense of them for the reader and paint this picture about how this is moving. And my analogy is a bad one in the sense that I like to say we're not living in a snapshot world. We're living in a motion picture world where the frames are accelerating, except today we don't have motion pictures with frames anymore. It's all digital. So it's an analog analogy in the digital world, but that's actually what's happening. The, the pace of change is moving more quickly every day. You know, I almost feel like your your book should be a living document, almost like with a QR code in there where someone that buys the book can every so often snapshot the QR code and go to new content that you're creating. Yeah, that'd be an interesting idea because at the end of the day, um, you know, I'm tempted to write the first sentence of that book saying, by the time you read this book, almost everything in it will be out of date and outmoded because right. it will, right? But the half-life, mm-hmm. for example, the half-life of my knowledge is less than, say, four months. In other words, I do a 12-hour workshop on battery storage and another one on the evolution of the power grid. And mm-hmm. I have to... If I do, uh, for example, I am, I'm, in two weeks, I'm doing a 12-hour workshop on batteries uh, in Las Vegas. And I had to go in and spend about three to four hours updating a deck that I just presented in July. Is it a public workshop? Yeah, it's, um, you know, it's with EUCI. And we typically have anywhere from 20 to 40 professionals in the room who want to understand, not the nitty-gritty of, mm, you know, the spreadsheet and the benefit cost, but why is storage going to take over and what do the business models look like? Where are the revenue streams coming from? What does the regulatory environment look like? And how do I need to think about this big picture before I then engage with the contractor and and go to the next step? So it sets the framework for 
you know, sort of mine's the 101, then there's a 201 with sort of these deeper level practitioners. But the, if you don't understand the why of something, there's no, there's no value in understanding the what. So that's one of the reasons we launched this podcast, because, you know, the question I asked you is that we want to find out the why of the individuals that are engaged in this space. So I appreciate you sharing that. And if you can send me a link to the workshop, happy to put it in the notes so people can find it. Oh, great. That's a, it's a fun time. We have, a, we have over a day and a half. I like to know who's in the room because all of them are subject matter experts that know a lot more about their particular topic than I ever will. And mm-hmm. so I can then start to use them to teach each other. And some of my most enjoyable moments are when I'm actually cut out of the conversation and someone just says, hey, Dan, you did so-and-so in Alberta or in Texas. What did that look like? And what were your biggest challenges? And I just sit back with maybe a sphinx-like smile on my face going, okay, I'm completely irrelevant at this moment, but education is still happening in this room and I'm learning too. So those are, those are some of my favorite moments. Well, I, I agree regarding the subject matter experts, but I feel like you have this unique way of distilling the information and conveying it, like you mentioned, from the storyteller perspective. So I really appreciate that. And on that note, you know, you mentioned you speak to investors. Where else do you speak and share this information? I know you mentioned the Forbes article too in the book, but do you give any other per- public seminars or lectures? Yes. So I actually work, um, I'm TRIA's Texas Renewable Energy Industry Alliance's storyteller and residence. So I work on their a newsletter every month. And then I moderate their conference at Gridnext, which you were at a couple of weeks ago. Uh, and then I'm also working with the Smart Energy Decisions Group, which is a forum for quarterly meetings with corporate purchasers and solutions providers. And I put together content and moderate those conversations. And then I do a lot of keynotes for the American Public Power Association and for many of their constituent members giving workshops all over the country and also to corporates. Um, what I find is there are a lot of folks uh, that maybe the C-suite understands the why, but not a lot of the other people do. And I love going in, for example, Austin Energy did their strategy kickoff and they had 60 or 70 people in a room and I did a three-hour workshop with them before they did their strategy session, just level setting, understanding across the entire group of individuals, like what's happening, how to think about this. So at least when they embark on that strategy session, they have some common framework of knowledge for the ensuing dialogue. I love doing mm-hmm. that sort of level setting engagement type. And that's my actual most favorite kind of work that I do is flying into some place, working with a team of people. For example, I did an eight-hour training with FERC staff this year just on the, the why of battery storage. That stuff is just beyond fun for me. Wow. So, Peter, a question I'd like to ask is, if you could share some advice with the audience, you know, what would it be? And it can be across the board. Uh, The first thing is, whatever you do, if you're looking for that next assignment, do something that scares you. Um, We don't grow as individuals if we don't make mistakes, uh, at least small ones. And if we don't do things that we're initially uncomfortable with embracing, the best and most satisfying jobs are usually ones where you, at the beginning of it, it happens to me with with, uh, consulting assignments where you go, huh. How am I going to tackle this? I know I'll be able to figure it out, but I don't know all the answers right now, but I think I have the skill set and the tools to do it. Um, but then, then through the process, you learn and you grow and so on. So step one is absolutely do something that scares you on occasion. And step two is whenever you're looking for that job, whether it's consulting or with other people, look for culture. Like the Texas Renewable Energy Industries Alliance folks, the first time I sat down with them at dinner, 
Mm -hmm. I thought to myself, this feels like home to me because they were all passionate, committed people who were funny at the same time and obviously enjoyed each other's company. I feel the same way about the SED group, the Smart Energy Decisions. I never, oh, there was one former fur commissioner who told me, you get to this point where as a successful consultant, there's this no jerks rule where you just don't work with anyone that doesn't share a common passion and commitment. So to me, it's, again, do something that makes you a little bit nervous because you haven't done it before. And then always, always look for culture. Life is too short to work with people that are no fun. I, I totally agree. And I'm a little laughing here because I write a personal blog and the subject morning the subject this morning was outliers and how you need to travel to the edge of the bell curve to really like get excited. Yeah, and, and that's what growth I mean at the end of the day, look, if we're if we're fortunate, we'll probably be, you know, somewhere lying on a deathbed with tubes in our nose. And I say fortunate because otherwise it meant we died very quickly and unexpectedly. But but let's say you're towards the end of your life and you're looking back and you're trying to figure out what was that journey all about? My belief is that your life's job is to write the best and most interesting and loving story that you can so that when someone hears that you died, they don't go, well, there's a better planet now as a consequence. Um, But instead, someone says, wow, I really missed that individual and I enjoyed my interaction with them. And so you look back and you want to go, okay, I hope I did stuff that was interesting. I hope I did things that were meaningful. And I hope that when people remember me, they do it with a smile. Because at the end of the day, that's what this whole journey is all about. The rest of it, the bank account, the car you drive, thats everybody knows that's all nonsense, even though we all get sucked into that all the time. So really thinking about it. I, I love the, the phrase that you should be always thinking about writing your obituary in the present because it mm-hmm. kind of brings you back to what's important in your life. You know, Peter, totally agree. And I want to tell you, this interaction has been thoroughly enjoyable. Usually when I end the podcast with my guests, I can say, you know, I'll follow up with you in a few years to kind of see where you are. But I almost feel like with you, and you mentioned the half-life of information, I want to, you know, follow up with you quarterly, or at least biannually to see what your thoughts are on the industry, if you'd be open to it. All right. I would absolutely love the conversation. Uh, it's been a pleasure. And uh, I've enjoyed our interactions to date and, and hope we can keep doing it. Well, Peter, thank you so much again for your time today. And like I said, I'll be sure to check in like within the quarter and see where you are. All right. Thank you very much. I much appreciated the opportunity. Thank you. Thank you.